Stay tuned next for Resistance Roundtable. Welcome to Resistance Roundtable, broadcast on WPK on the second Saturday of each month, where we engage in conversation about local and nationwide opposition to the Trump regime agenda. Hosting today's show is Ruth Ann Baumgartner, instructor in literature and writing at Central Connecticut State University, member of the Executive Committee of the Connecticut Conference of the American Association of University Professors, also serving as a member of the Board of Directors and Director with the Westport Community Theater. Richard Hill is here. He's host of WPKN Show's first Tuesday Rainy Day Radio, Organic Farm Stand, and an alternating host of Mike Check. Richard is a musician, teacher, and mentor with Youth Radio Connecticut. I'm Scott Harris, host of WPKN Weekly Public Affairs Programs, Counterpoint and Between the Lines. And uh, those programs, at least uh, the Between the Lines program, Ruth and Richard are both contributors and uh, very happy that we have both uh, Ruth Ann and Richard in the studio with us this morning. How are you all doing? I'm fine. I'm I'm a little bit uh, a little bit left-footed today because I'm in the middle of a theater production at the same time. So my mind has been going in a lot of different directions. But I'm excited to be talking to our guest later on, and I'm delighted to be here. Ruth Ann, to just tell our audience a, a bit about that play, just briefly. Um, it's called. Um, Bakersfield Mist, and it's it's a speculation kind of or a, a spinoff from um, a case where someone found what he believed to be a, a lost um, Jackson Pollock painting, and he went on a quest to prove that it was genuine. In this play, it's a woman who buys it in a thrift shop, mm. um, and she, and the play mostly is a debate between this uh, woman who is self-described trailer trash and uh, the art expert from New York City who comes to evaluate this this picture in question. Uh, really, it's a discussion about what constitutes reality, what constitutes authenticity. Mm. It's funny, too. So, uh, And I have two actors. It's a two-actor play, and they are wonderful actors. So... Thank you for a chance to plug it, Richard. Uh, Scott, it's at uh, Westport Community Theater in Westport, Connecticut for it, two more weekends. It runs through the 19th of February. That's correct. Good. Richard, how are you doing? I'm not a morning person, but I'm here. So that's... You seem you uncharacteristically chipper this morning. I know. Well, I've, I've figured out a way to get here in under half an hour, which is pretty amazing because... For some reason, it used to take uh, 35, 40 minutes, and now I can do it in 28 minutes from Brantford. So that's, I feel like I'm somewhat energized by that. Well, we're going to be joined in just a few minutes by uh, Gerald Horn, a professor of history at uh, the University of Houston. Uh, but, but, but before we um, get uh, Professor Horn on the phone, I wanted to ask you both just briefly what you thought of uh, Joe Biden's State of the Union 
uh, address. It was certainly unlike many we've seen in recent <laughs> decades in terms of the mm. uh, the back and forth with uh, braying hounds, as I think somebody described it earlier this morning. Yeah. Well, if somebody had yelled liar, liar uh, at someone who was speaking more or less the truth in my mother's day, she would have done what she did to me when I told a lie. No playmates for a week. You must stay in the backyard. You cannot go anywhere off this property. It was was really terrible punishment for a five-year-old. And I think uh, the members of Congress who indulged in similar... I mean, calling somebody a liar on the floor of Congress used to be grounds for a duel. Um, maybe we needed that, although I'd hate to put Joe Biden in the position of guns at, at uh, sunrise. Yeah, that doesn't sound but like it. It made me really well. angry. I know who they, these people who have been being elected to Congress. I know we've always had some people with those kinds of attitudes toward their work, but this, it just seemed to me to be uh, childish and totally inappropriate and indecent. Yeah, it, it definitely became uh, normalized when uh, several members yelled at Barack Obama during right. his State of the Union address some years ago. That's right. But um, that generated a lot of horror because it was so anomalous. You know, it, had, it hadn't happened in recent history. But yeah, it, I guess it established a precedent for people of that ilk. And now instead of just being a few who feel that they can crash through barriers of that sort. There's a whole pack of them. I'll tell you, it made the State of the Union address a whole lot more vibrant and entertaining than uh, it normally is. Because it's been basically a guy reading off a teleprompter for an hour, one side of the aisle standing up and clapping, the other side of the aisle sitting on their hands all evening. So this was indeed, as some people said, sort of like the House of Commons the British House of Commons, there was like a back and forth with Biden and, and the crazed mob that were foaming and yelling. But I thought the best moment for Biden was when he said, you know, Biden is not the best orator in the world, but he did seem to be improvising pretty well that night. And one of the things he said was, which the media didn't mention much, there weren't many playbacks of it. But he said at one point when he saw that people were objecting to his accusing them of sunsetting Medicare and Social Security, they were vociferously yelling and screaming about that. He said, oh, OK, I enjoy conversion. In other words, you, you've all been converted to being for Social Security and Medicare. And it was just a one liner, but he said it. And some people, I, I think, on, on the Democratic side laughed. But I only saw it once in the playbacks, and so I thought that was his best quip. Yeah, I, li- I liked the, sy- the uh, symbolism some years ago when Trump was president, and at the end of uh, one of his State of the Union speeches, Nancy Pelosi very dramatically <laughs> tore the, sp- the copy of the speech oh, he had. Yes. <laughs> oh, that was incredible. Yeah, that was A little more subtle, but uh, effective nonetheless. Yeah, that was beautiful. Any other thoughts on the State of the Union, Ruthann? I was pleased with with President Biden. I like him pretty much. He's I'm, he's not in my uh, heroes gallery yet, but uh, I like him pretty much. And I was pleased with his poise, and I was really pleased that he took the time to speak. I understand what sometimes stands between himself and eloquence, 
and uh, he has always he he learned to handle it as a child the stammer and I, w- I was pleased at how well he continued to to handle it because it suggested that he was fully in control of uh, of his um, focus and his poise in that speech and I would not have been able to perform in a similar with a similar expertise yeah well I guess some said that because he had spent so much time in the Senate and also that he had attended how many states of the Union address probably 40 or something during his his years how, how long he was in the Senate for like 40 or 50 years that he sort of knew the terrain and he was ready for action, you know, and his course of staff had prepped him and prepared him for there to be a lot of rabble rousing while he was uh, speaking. So, yeah, that was great. I thought it was very good to see him not be thrown off his horse by that. Well, we're very fortunate uh, this morning to uh, have our guest, Gerald Horn, an American historian who holds the John J. and Rebecca Moore Chair of History in African-American Studies at the University of Houston. He's on the line now. Uh, Professor Horn's research has addressed issues of racism in a variety of relations involving labor, politics, civil rights, international relations, and war. Professor Horn is author of some 40 books. His award-winning titles include Confronting Black Jacobins, The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Apocalypse of Settler Colonialism, Race to Revolution, Jazz and Justice, Paul Robeson, the Artist as Revolutionary, Fire This Time, the Watts Uprising in the 1960s, and the Counter-Revolution of 1776, Slave Resistance and the Origins of the United States of America. And we'd like to congratulate Dr. Horn, who was recently honored by the Caribbean Philosophical Association, naming him as recipient of their 2023 France Fanon Lifetime Achievement Award. Congratulations to you, Dr. Horn, on that honor. Well, thank you, and thank you for inviting me. It's great to have you there. I'll get things started here with a question. Um, After the police murder of Tyree Nichols in Memphis, Tennessee, there's been a renewed uh, debate and discussion about police reform and uh, really reworking how policing in this country is done and training and a whole roster of issues. But I wanted to ask you how you feel, as a country, we should address police violence and racism when the federal path seems to be blocked. Uh, A case in point is the 2021 Senate filibuster blocking passage of the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. And uh, as, as we approach this topic, I wanted to ask you what we can learn from U.S. history about Uh, Working for policy solutions addressing systemic racism with a focus on organizing at the local and state level as opposed to the federal level. Well, certainly organizing is an absolute necessity. I would not only include the state and local level, I would include the international level because it's global pressure that has helped to move the needle with regard to racism. You mentioned the book that I wrote and a number of books that I wrote on the colonial period in North America and, in fact, the founding of the United States of America. And one of the points that I tried to stress is that many of our friends on the left in analyzing U.S. history, shockingly enough, have misinterpreted the class question. Uh, That is to say that um, 
if you look at the enslaved population, there was little reason for them to engage in class collaboration with George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, Patrick Henry, enslavers. And of course, when you fight against a powerful class such as those men and lose, you should expect to be pulverized and penalized forevermore. Turning the coin over, it's perhaps, perhaps understandable why the European settlers engaged in class collaboration. After all, they had the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, speaking of uh, the land of the Native Americans, and with a little bit of luck and a lot of pluck, they could get enslaved Africans to work for them. And so (laughs) our friends on the left have misinterpreted class on both sides of the fence. And so this has left the black population in in many ways stranded and bereft, particularly at a time when the U.S. left, perhaps understandably because of their misunderstanding of the class question, uh, or rather poultry in numbers. And so that is a fatal flaw because if you look at how we were able to escape enslavement, it had a lot to do with British abolitionism and the impact of the Haitian Revolution. If you look at how we were able to escape Jim Crow, it had a lot to do with the rise of African liberation movements, the contestation with the socialist camp, uh, et cetera. And so, and so this, is, this helps to explain why in the State of the Union address, uh, Mr. Biden, rather remarkably, after talking about how the United States was this great country founded on an idea, gave very explicit and detailed instructions to black parents as to how to tell their children to avoid to be slain during routine traffic stops. I I found that remarkable in the history of the United States of America. So this is the problem we face. So we need to organize on the local, the state, and the global level. Richard, would you like to uh, address this or another topic? Yeah, well, I, I guess um, shift a little bit here, but I wanted to ask you, Professor Horn, if you could expound upon the intersection between the suppression of African-American studies in schools, primary and secondary schools and universities, with the persistence of the, I guess you call it the centurion policing, even in the wake of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and many other police killings. Do we see a intersection there? Well, it ties into my previous point. Uh, It's understandable, perhaps, why Governor DeSantis in Florida would want to circumscribe the teaching of African-American studies. Uh, It's understandable, perhaps, why Governor Youngkin of Virginia and his successful campaign for the state mansion uh, campaigned against the late Nobel laureate Toni Morrison because supposedly her works on slavery traumatized little Jennifer and little Johnny. The issue is what I referred to before. If you want to have an uplifting narrative about the history of the United States of America, the story of black people does not fit very well. And so rather than adjust the narrative, you try to suppress the story of black people. And that's what's happening in Florida. That's what happened in Virginia. Uh, This occurred to me most dramatically when I was screening the recent Hollywood blockbuster Woman King starring Viola Davis who, of course, has roots in New England. And it's a story, for those who may not be familiar, about a brigade of armed African women who are trying to resist the slave trade. And it's apparent that for these Africans, uh, crossing the Atlantic to work for free was not their idea of the good life. And this is a major capital investment. It's a movie that costs uh, millions of dollars to make, filmed on location in Southern Africa, grossing about $100 million dollars. And so there's really this disconnect 
between the experience of black people in this country and this necessity, apparently, to tell this uplifting story that will help to imbue patriotism in many. And once again, what happens is that black people get left on the cutting room floor, metaphorically. And I should also add Native Americans as well and others who may not fit neatly into the hollowed halls of whiteness. Uh, Scott just pointed at me, and um, I, I was trying to develop a, a point here that wasn't working very well. Um, so I'll just see where I get with this, uh, Mr. Horn. I, um, I'll go. I'll veer over to a question that I've had that may not be connected directly. Um, I'm wondering about how possible it is for black neighborhoods, people who grow up in black neighborhoods, or even people who grow up in integrated neighborhoods, but in, in, in the um, economic underclass, uh, how well they have, a, how, how well they are capable of moving to a position of empowerment when it looks as if the policing style um, in our country has gone way far away from Barney Miller and has joined the, um, the uh, pattern almost of an army of occupation where the police are not the same um, peoples as the people they police, even if they may physically resemble them. What do you think about the, the uh, inequities, maybe, I, or am I adding that in, the inequities between the worldview of the police and the worldview of the policed? Are they at all compatible? Is there any way of finding finding some kind of uh, truce there? Well, first of all, with regard to this question of the police, uh, I do not reject out of hand the question of police reform. Uh, that would be a bit sectarian and ultra-leftist. But what I am suggesting is that given the deep roots that uh, racism and white supremacy have in the society, which leads to uh, the spectacle of Tyree Nichols being murdered fundamentally on camera or George Floyd being murdered fundamentally on camera, uh, you're going to have to move beyond reform. So having said that, I do think that uh, moving armed men and women away from handing out traffic tickets is a useful reform, particularly since so often this handing out of traffic tickets for minor Infractions leads to the unilateral imposition of the death penalty. Mm. Certainly, I think that the idea of moving a portion of these ballooning police budgets away from the men and women who carry weapons into a kind of branch that is akin to social workers to deal with certain issues is a reform worth pursuing. <clears throat> that is to say, if there is a noise complaint by a neighbor, uh, perhaps you should send a social worker to address that or someone with uh, adept and adroit interpersonal skills rather than a man or wo woman with a gun who's used to uh, operating like a, a Marine in a foreign country. So I think that these reforms are well worth pursuing. Uh, I think all of us should, should get behind them, but we should have no illusions, however, with regard to the depth and profundity of the problem that we face. And that is why I come once again to the question of international pressure. Uh, that has been a hallmark of some segments of the Black Lives Matter movement. That is to say, going to the Human Rights Council in Geneva, Switzerland, 
I've heard discussion about working with friends at the United Nations General Assembly to have a debate in the United Nations General Assembly on the so-called responsibility to protect. Recall that that was a principle invoked about a decade ago to overthrow the Gaddafi regime in Libya because supposedly he was not protecting his people. Well, certainly the United States is not protecting its black, black citizenry, and we need to have the United States embarrassed on the global level. Until we start thinking outside of the box in that way, I'm afraid to say we're always going to be dealing with these uh, multiple tragedies that seem to be all too familiar. Thank you for that, Professor Horn. I I did want to go back to what you were saying about Ron DeSantis and uh, the Republican culture war. At least 18 states have enacted legislation since last year to limit the teaching of what they call divisive concepts or critical race theory. And amid criticism from Ron DeSantis in Florida and other conservative politicians, the College Board changed the curriculum of its new advanced placement uh, African-American studies course, excluding concepts such as Black Lives Matter reparations and other contemporary struggles for equality and racial justice. I think a lot of people were angry that the College Board caved in to what were clearly a long list of conversations that they've had since last fall. And I think there's an overriding concern that caving in to this uh, this intolerance and this this notion of white supremacy in U.S. education will only make things worse. What, what's your view of what the College Board did and, and, and more broadly – Uh, what DeSantis and the GOP culture warriors are doing in this country vis-a-vis public education? Well, obviously obviously the College Board did not bathe itself in glory with this latest antics. However, in a a kind of uh, awkward defense of what they did, I would say that perhaps uh, they espied what happened to Nicole Hannah-Jones, the former New York Times reporter, and the Pulitzer Prize-winning creator of the so-called 1619 Project, which sought to reframe the narrative of the history of the United States around the question of slavery. Now, that led, of course, to a series on Hulu, which is unfolding as we speak. But if you go back and look at the scurrilous and vicious attacks on Nicole Hannah-Jones by uh, pillars of the historical establishment— Uh, not to mention the kind of uh, insult that was directed at her on a very personal level on Twitter and other social platforms, perhaps the college board was aware of that and decided they did not want to have a similar sort of experience. Or if you look at the demagogy that's accompanied this debate or discussion about so-called critical race theory, which comes out of law schools, is generally only taught at law schools today as we speak, is not part of K-12 through education, but the fundamental issue is that apparently politicians feel that votes can be harvested by frightening and scaring uh, Euro-American working-class and middle-class voters with the spectacle of their children being subjected to propaganda along the lines of how they define so-called critical race theory. So uh, on the one hand, uh, Mr. DeSantis is doing what any demagogue would seek to do, 
which is play upon the insecurities and fears and, in fact, ignorance of the broad swath of the electorate. And the college board, uh, which apparently is dependent upon the good wishes of that same uh, electorate, uh, feels it has to bend the knee. Just a quick follow-up on that, if I could. And, and I think there's, there's a feeling, certainly, that I have and maybe other people across the country have that we're in this posture right now of being reactive or, or only being responsive to these culture war attacks on education and a lot of other areas in our society. And I'm wondering how you, uh, how you would strategize and implement a more proactive, uh, a more aggressive policy at attacking this kind of uh, virulent uh, white supremacy uh, as being practiced by a large part of the Republican Party, rather than just being responsive, is there not a need to take this fight to the racists and, and not just lay back and, and respond? Certainly. Not. I think that's happening to a degree. I, I don't want to uh, mislead you or your audience. I mean, if you look at the, the whole flap involving the college board, you've had a lot of pushback. Uh, you might have seen the article by Mara Gay of the New York Times editorial board, her column, excoriating the college board. Uh, it was a letter signed by hundreds of professors in African-American studies denouncing uh, the college board. And, of course, uh, generally speaking, I think it's fair to say that there has been a counteroffensive uh, taking the action uh, to the demagogues, uh, for example, but uh, alas, I think that the missing link, once again, is that the domestic correlation of forces has rarely been overwhelmingly positive for those who are fighting on the anti-racism racism front. And there is a missing link. There is a plus that has to be brought to the table, which, once again, is internationalizing this question because the United States, as it's presently constituted, has shown itself uh, incapable of being able to handle this fraught issue on its own. Dr. Horn, Richard Hill here. I, I just want to ask you about this situation that we have been observing of late, that we've seen the emergence and, I should say, resurgence of many white and Christian nationalist groups in recent days, all of them close cousins or even progeny of the KKK, and we've also learned that many U.S. military and civilian police personnel who are members of these racist groups, and they've been exposed or even proudly pronouncing their affiliation. Is this a novel phenomenon, or are there historical roots and iterations of this that we might explore? Oh, it's certainly not novel. I'm sure you're familiar with the origins of the Ku Klux Klan, uh, the still existent terrorist organization uh, pushing a white supremacist line. It arises precisely as slavery is being abolished in 1865. And once again, if you look at the structure of the United States of America, if you look at the vaunted U.S. Constitution and its Second Amendment, which undergirds in a juridical sense the mass shootings that have afflicted El Paso, Texas, and Ovalde, Texas, and Buffalo, New York, and Half Moon Bay, California, Monterey Park, California. The Second Amendment 
basically called upon the formation of settler militias armed in order to suppress revolts of the enslaved and the indigenous. They did their dirty work until global contradictions led to a U.S. civil war, which eventuated in the abolition of slavery, which then leads to a carnival of lynching, replacing militias to help to keep oppressed groups in line. And then when there was international pressure against militia, excuse me, against lynch mobs, you had the rise uh, post-World War II of police departments who use lynch tactics, such as happened in Memphis a few days ago. So I think that we should not be surprised by the fact that a a so-called white nationalist tendency is deeply rooted in U.S. culture because it's deeply rooted in U.S. history. And all you have to do is look at January 6, 2021, and look at the trials that have ensued thus far involving the three percenters, the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, and other uh, white nationalist uh, groupings. Or go back a bit further to the election in Louisiana in 1991, uh, which involved David Duke, a Klansman and a Nazi leader, getting 55% of the Euro-American vote across class lines in a race for governor. So I think that what happens, that like Mr. Biden at the State of the Union, many people who really should know better, they prefer this uplifting, glorious narrative of the United States and how we were all fighting for the good fight and fighting for the good cause, when actually the United States has a really, really blood-stained history of class conflict, white nationalism, white supremacy, and now it's all sort of all catching up with us, and people are all thumbs when it comes to handling that question, at least some, I'm afraid. Thank you. I'm thinking from, uh, from some, of the, some of the things that you've mentioned, I'm, I'm thinking about the moment in my own life when I thought that the world was going to change and that especially the United States was going to change, and that happened sometime in the 1960s and early 70s before the guns were turned on on the pro- protesting kids. Um, it looked as if so many things were being put into play. There was the whole um, issue of the anti-war movement, of course. There was the environmental issue that was kind of newborn in what was that, 60 um, eight sixty four somewhere in there, uh, the first Earth Day. There was the music, uh, the um, confirmation of the importance of folk music and what it what it represented. There was uh, so much uh, activity toward civil rights, and there were uh, also kids committing to the Peace Corps and committing to uh, service in their towns and committing to other other things. And I felt being in my prime age at that time, I felt that I was on the crest of a really important um, change, uh, sea change, if you will, in the United States and maybe in the world. And then suddenly that all went away. And I know that a lot of it had to do with uh, the um, a spanking that Wall Street gave uh, to the kids. But uh, do you think that that was a a general movement that could have continued and if circumstances had been different or a movement that we should try in some way to reconstruct? 
Well, certainly trying to reconstruct that moment uh, is well worth pursuing. But uh, as my previous remarks tended to suggest, I thought that I think that that unique moment of the 1960s and early 1970s was driven in no small measure by a confluence of global factors. That is to say that as African nations, resource rich, were coming to independence and Caribbean nations oftentimes seen as a threat to U.S. national security in the wake of the Cuban Revolution of 1959, that as they were surging to independence, Jamaica in 1962, for example, Ghana in 1957, the United States found it difficult to impose and implant its usual apartheid policies upon its own black citizens. And so that created a dynamic the U.S. Supreme Court itself acknowledged in the epical Brown versus Board of Education decision of 1954, whereby the United States had to make this agonizing retreat away from the egregious aspects of U.S. apartheid and Jim Crow. But, of course, the price to be paid was that the left-leaning labor unions were crushed in the process. I'm speaking of West Coast Longshore, for example, the National Maritime Union, for example. And the left generally is repressed. You mentioned, uh, I take it, the killings at Kent State, for example, the killings at Jackson State and Mississippi. And so it reminds me of U.S. uh, counterinsurgency tactics in Central America. It was uh, fusiles y frijoles, um, rifles and beans. (laughs) That is to say, uh, concessions on the one hand, but repression on the other. And ultimately, that dual strategy especially the repression half, uh, works this magic uh, to the point where movements, which are the ultimate guarantor of our rights and our liberties, uh, tend to disintegrate. And so, yes, it is worthwhile to try to uh, pursue uh, what happened uh, decades ago, uh, but we should be mindful of the formidable barriers that confront us. Thank you. Dr. Horn? Uh I wanted to take a look at U.S. politics just for a moment. And I, I, in my view, and, and maybe the view of many listening today, and maybe yourself, one of our nation's two major political parties today, the Republican Party, for all intents and purposes, has positioned and identifies itself as America's white supremacist party. That party is systematically working to dismantle and reverse civil rights and reproductive rights laws through overturning Supreme Court rulings going back to the 1960s. And, of course, you have many in the Republican Party today who have embraced the fascist great replacement theory, uh, which is really frightening. Another (laughs) one of many Mm. frightening things going on these days. But I wonder if you would assess for us how the Democratic Party, the other major party, which has, of course, its major flaws, but how would you assess how the Democratic Party is uh, responding to this challenge? I mean, there's always been a current of white supremacy in both parties, as I'm sure you can uh, you can recount for us. But it seems today we're at a different level of... Uh, being out of the closet in terms of the Republicans? Well, we certainly are. And I think that that speaks to our earlier discussion. Uh, That is to say, as I was suggesting, it would be quite useful 
to pursue these reforms. But since we know that the Trumpistas and the right wing have stacked the courts, particularly the U.S. Supreme Court, mm-hmm. any possible reform could be invalidated by the courts if that is the usual option that we're pursuing. And I'm afraid to say that the NAACP, for example, one of the stalwarts uh, of liberalism, uh, has overdetermined the courts in terms of vindicating rights. And you could say the same for many of their comrades in the trenches. But that mistakes the correlation of forces that you just articulated when you have 74, 75 million people in 2020 who vote for Donald Trump, despite an inglorious record of misdeeds and transgressions. Well, this is something that cannot be easily ignored. Now, with regard to the Democrats, on the one hand, I guess you can make an excuse for the Democrats. You could say that the Democrats have not won a majority of the Euro-American vote across class lines in more than a half century in a country grounded in white supremacy. That is a formidable hurdle to overcome. But having said that, uh, there have been some self-inflicted wounds uh, by the Democrats. I'm, I'm thinking most recent, recently of their joining the Republicans in this anti-socialism resolution, uh, which many Democrats sadly and tragically voted for. Now, it was sort of a paper resolution on the one hand, but given the fact that uh, going back to the New Deal, uh, when Social Security were, by the right wing was called socialism, Uh, When we tried to have national health care, that's called socialism. So in many ways, the Democrats are surrendering and handing a weapon uh, to their opponents, which their opponents then begin to wield against the rest of us. Although, on the one hand, uh, I understand uh, why they do retreat, uh, given the numbers that I've been citing in the past few minutes. Thank you, Dr. Horn. I think Richard has another comment or question. Yeah. Talking on a similar topic, I wonder if you might comment on the fact that the word fascism and fascist have been used with surprising frequency uh, by mainstream politicians and media. And given that, do you detect a heightened awareness of an existential fascist threat and the possibility of the coalescing of a broad-based anti-fascist movement in the face of that? Well, with regard to the former issue, the answer is unequivocally yes. Uh, I find it striking that the late U.S. Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, in one of her last published works, it was called Fascism, A Warning. And of course, uh, that is something that she was quite familiar with. If you look at what's happening globally with regard to Italy and the rise to power of Prime Minister Maloney and her so-called Brothers Party, which uh, celebrates uh, Benito Mussolini, who a century ago could fairly be considered the uh, founder of fascism. If you look at the Alternative for Germany party uh, in, in, uh, in Berlin, if you look at Bolsonaro uh, in Brazil, narrowly defeated uh, in that election, uh, once again, this is a global movement. And of course, our opponents and detractors are trying to take advantage of those global currents. I'm speaking of uh, Steve Bannon, the defrocked former advisor to Mr. Trump, who travels quite frequently to Brazil, counseling the right wing there, travels quite frequently to Europe, counseling the right wing there. Whereas on our side of the equation, 
uh, we seem to think that uh, organizing globally and internationally is somehow, quote, unpatriotic, unquote. So certainly uh, we have to be mindful of this fascist threat. In fact, if you look at my latest book, if I may, the title is The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery and Jim Crow and the Roots of U.S. Fascism. Because once again, I don't think you can understand the last few words of that subtitle without understanding a nation uh, that was based upon genocide against uh, the indigenous mass enslavement of the Africans. And given that culture and given the apparent necessity to try to rationalize these crimes against humanity, it seems to create a fertile womb uh, for the birth of a unique kind of neo-fascism, which we should all be alert to. Dr. Horn, I, I want to uh, maybe have you leave our audience with a, a few words of hope, <laughs> if you have them, <laughs> after this fairly dark discussion about the state of our country and the world. Um, and any message of hope you'd like to leave us with this morning? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you I mentioned Brazil. Uh, President Lula was just at the White House yesterday. And, of course, he took time to meet and he, of course, comes from the Workers' Party, a social democratically oriented party. Uh, he took time to meet uh, with uh, AOC Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez. He took time to meet with uh, Bernie Sanders in addition to <laughs> Mr. Biden himself. He also met with uh, the AFL-CIO. I, 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 that made me a little nervous given their rather negative history and foreign policy, but hopefully uh, it was a positive uh, agenda. Uh, Brazil, of course, is a founding member of the BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, which is trying to move uh, this small planet uh, to the left, I'm happy to say. And certainly there are many uh, local movements that have arisen in the United States that are reason for optimism. I'm thinking of the Black Lives Matter movement. I'm thinking of the union organizing drives at Amazon and Starbucks. So... There is much to congratulate ourselves about. But once again, I think that the problem in this country is not a dearth of self-congratulation. <laughs> it's a dearth of organizing on multiple fronts and to return full circle on the local level, the state level and the global level. One follow up on that, Dr. Horn. The previous question that I asked, this is Richard again, asked what are the chances what 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 is the potential for a broad-based movement given the the i think the alarm and the alert that's been sounded even by mainstream politicians about fascism a broad-based movement that is countering these grotesque manifestations of a fascist tendency that being white supremacy christian nationalism an anti-working class agenda, also a corporatist agenda. What are the chances that a broad-based movement might form in this country to counter those forces? Well, I, I, I think that it's possible, but I, I must confess, whenever uh, I'm asked to address an audience such as this morning, uh, I think there's a tendency on the U.S. left, perhaps because they're trying to go with the flow, to paint an overly optimistic, overly uplifting, glorious picture of how we got to this point, not unlike what Mr. Biden was doing at the State of the Union. And uh, I'm not sure if, if that is helpful to 
the constituencies that I write about, particularly the black community, might lull them into a false sense of security. <laughs> I mean, uh, I think that it, to, to coin a phrase, that in the 1930s in Europe, it might have been useful to paint a so-called dark picture because a dark picture was then emerging as opposed to going with the flow and uh, painting an overly optimistic picture. And perhaps uh, if people are really, really upset and concerned and are well aware of the actual correlation of forces or actually aware of some of these numbers I've been citing, such as 74 to 75 million voted for Donald Trump in a nation of 330 million, uh, it would be mathematically imprecise to say that a nation of 330 million, that 74 million con- constitutes the 1%. Obviously, the 1% uh, have a lot of backers and supporters. And that's what we should be aware of. And that's what we should be focused on as we move forward. Well, thank you so much for joining us, uh, Dr. Horan. You've given us a lot to think about. Can you offer us a website or places where they can find some of your recent articles and as well as uh, a list of your 40-some-odd books? Well, there's a Wikipedia entry of, of myself that lists all the books that I've published, at least, uh, well, um, almost all of the books that I've published thus far, which, of course, can be found at most sites that don't need me to advertise them. <laughs> and um, many of the lectures and talks that I give uh, can be found uh, at the Activist News Network, and it can be found on a Facebook page devoted to my work. And I should also say I, I host a radio program on kpfk.org. That's the Pacifica station in Los Angeles. Right. It, it's, it, it, it broadcasts uh, 11 a.m. Pacific on Saturdays, which is a few hours from now, but mm-hmm. of course can be found at their archive at KPFK. And w- one of the things we try to do is, is talk to a lot of scholars because – there's a lot of great research that's being done in the trenches. That's why, why you have Governor DeSantis and Governor Youngkin uh, raising uh, a stink about it. And so our side oftentimes is not aware of these new revelations that scholars and journalists and filmmakers are coming up with. And that's what we focus on on that program. And that's KPFK. And that's uh, Saturday mornings at 11 a.m. Pacific time, right? That's right. And, of course, it'll be at the archive uh, for 10 weeks uh, thereafter. All right. Well, thanks so much for joining us. As I said, you've left left us with a lot to think about. And we'll stay in touch. Hope hope to have you back soon. All right. Thank you. Good luck. Bye-bye. Thanks, Professor Horn. That's uh, Gerald Horn, uh, American historian who holds the John J. and Rebecca Moore's Chair of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston. So we've got just a few minutes left And I know we had some rants to deliver to the audience (laughs) before we have to say our goodbyes. And I think uh, I'll I'll ask you, Ruth, I know you've prepared something on a topic close to our hearts. I had something really tightly prepared and I uh, my printer died and (laughs) didn't quite get printed. And it's such an elaborate argument that I think I need to recreate it for next time. But I have a I have a, a. a Latin tag that I learned when I was studying Latin uh, many, many years ago. And it's been, been one of the most important phrases in my mind that I ask it so many times. So I'm going to teach it to everyone. It is quis custodiat ipsus custodes. That means who will guard the guardians or who is guarding 
the guardians. And I think that um, that the talk this morning um, with Professor Horn made that elaborately clear that that's a very important question. And I think what we have had to say about American politics in general also makes that clear. Who is going to guard the guardians if not us, if not the guarded who is going to guard them? Uh, there was a great... Um, a great editorial in the student newspaper of my alma mater, and it was mainly about uh, Ron DeSantis's attack on the liberal arts. And uh, Ben Warren, the editor of this uh, of the Dickinson student paper, says um, it's it's very important to stay on top of things that are going on, such as in Florida, and not sit smugly in a liberal arts independent college because you have no more protections than the state schools when it comes to state funds. Mm -hmm. And uh, I thought that I I was very proud of Mr. Warren for um, speaking out on that. Nobody is safe. You all have a responsibility to keep track of what's going on and to guard the guardians. So that's my rant. Well said. I was just going to mention briefly and recommend an article from FAIR, the group Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, they had a, a good rundown of the media coverage of the China spy balloon. Uh, basically, the, the headline was Media Spy Balloon Obsession, a Gift to China Hawks. And I think we have to be continuously careful about uh, how we are seemingly running into, God forbid, a nightmarish scenario of a two-front war where the United States is engaged in a war, a proxy war with Russia and Ukraine. And then there's all this talk about some cataclysmic event that will cause a U.S. war with China over Taiwan. It's just very dangerous. And how the U.S. media covered this so-called spy balloon, we're not sure it's a spy balloon, but and there was another shoot down of an object flying over Alaska last night, I think it was. Mm. Anyway, there's a lot to think about there in terms of uh, how we might stumble into some insane era where World War III actually does come to pass mm. if we're not careful. I think we have to be uh, extremely vigilant about holding our government to account and not trying to get votes by uh, bashing the Chinese or the Russians at every turn. Yeah, that's a hallmark of American foreign policy, using that kind of jingoism to gin up support from across party lines even. Just a short comment about the fact that the State of the Union address actually had practically zero content about foreign policy. I think there was one brief mention of Ukraine, but the way that candidates across the board especially even within the Democratic Party, candidates who are considered on the left of the spectrum are extremely either ignorant of or fearful of talking about foreign policy. And if they do, they adhere to the time-tested shibboleths about the constant threat coming from someplace. In this case, now it's Russia and China. I mean, I grew up with the Cold War, and when the Soviet Union dissolved and we were left with a unipolar world, we thought that things might change, but uh, no, they have not. Thank you, Richard. That's it for Resistance Roundtable for this month, February. We'll see you the second Saturday of next month, March. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned. WPK and Birchport.